I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers, credit shoutouts to Mark Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace Belden, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere M-E-E-R Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program. Later on in the show, we'll be speaking with friend of the program, Nolan Higman, who is returning to talk about his new book, co-authored with Nicholas Baham III, The Podcaster's Dilemma, Decolonizing Podcasters in the Age of surveillance capitalism, an academic book that, believe it or not, I'm actually mentioned in. But before we get to that, Professor Carl Rhodes, Dean of UTS Business School, University of Technology, Sydney, joins us to discuss his recent book, Woke Capitalism, How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging Democracy. Now, before you get the impression that this is another right-wing Ben Shapiro-style attack on anything remotely progressive happening today under the auspices that this is an assault 
on traditional conservative values by woke capitalist corporations, that's not the perspective this book is coming from. In fact, I would say it's a left-wing critique of corporations branding themselves as woke and the limits that exist with regards to those corporations and their potential for influencing social change. It's a really interesting book, it does not come from either the right wing or what's now become known as the post-left perspectives, and I want to get right to it with Professor Carl Rhodes, author of, again, Woke Capitalism, How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging Democracy. Welcome to Parallax Views, Carl Rhodes, Dean of UTS Business School, University of Technology, Sydney, and author of the book we're going to be talking about today, Woke Capitalism, How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging Democracy. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, JG. Great to be with you. So I know already that a bunch of my listeners probably heard the title Woke Capitalism, and they're thinking, oh, is this another uh, like Josh Hawley type screed about, you know, big tech and, and wokeness? And it's very, very different uh, from that. So I guess where we should start is uh, what do we mean by woke capitalism? Um, uh, well, I'm glad you pointed out that, uh, that at, the, at the beginning. I mean, by woke capitalism uh, is really referring to a quite a contemporary phenomena that really kind of gained um, traction during the, the Trump years over, over where you are, um, where major corporations, CEOs and billionaires, for example, um, start publicly and financially supporting political causes that you'd normally associate with kind of social progressives, the kind of left social causes, um, if you like. Uh, the Me Too movement was a good example, Black Lives Matter, same-sex marriage, climate activism, even animal rights. Now, some of the things that you wouldn't traditionally expect, you know, uh, conservative corporations to be getting into, but suddenly now we see we see a lot more activity around these things. Again, things that you would traditionally think of as fairly uh, left-wing or at least progressive type of activity. So this is, is what, what, what capitalism is. So how did you come to write the book and what are your thoughts, I guess, on the current sort of culture war over this term? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, let me tell you a little story, actually, if you just permit me a slight digression. Earlier this year, I got a, um, an email from some think tank in Florida, in the United States, um, inviting me on an all expenses paid trip. I'm in Sydney, right? Holiday in Florida, that's pretty nice for me. All expenses paid trip uh, to Florida to speak um, at some event that they were having. So I looked into this uh, and I found that the, the headline speaker at this event, I was to be on a panel, was uh, someone who you might know very well, Jordan Peterson. Oh, um, God. <laughs> I, yeah, so I, look, I looked into this and I thought, what's going on? And clearly, they'd seen the title of my book and seen the word woke and seen the word democracy and made a whole lot of assumptions that I was in this kind of, you know, crazy right wing 
Jordan Peterson, Mark Rubio kind of uh, mentality, where clearly I'm, I'm entirely the opposite. So I, I take your, your point on that. I mean, my take on woke capitalism is different. I mean, on the one hand, you do have that kind of criticism of woke capitalism, people who don't like anything that they associate with kind of wokeness, um, and they think that, that this is, this is uh, a terrible thing. I'm more concerned with what this agenda does in terms of empowering capitalism and what it means in the kind of the balance or the, or the nexus between liberal democracy and market economies uh, in which we live and the way that that increasing uh, social influence and political influence of corporations is disturbing the balance between the public and the private. And this is a delicate balance that democratic societies always are, are kind of grappling with. But the, the base idea of, of democracy that, that, that public interests are governed by the people, by by popular sovereignty. I mean, the whole dawn of democracy was about overthrowing feudal power, overthrowing uh, aristocratic power. Look at the American Revolution, the French Revolution. And we've moved to a part now where private interests represented by wealthy corporations, and in many cases, wealthy individuals, are increasingly encroaching on on public matters. And um, woke capitalism is, is a particular contemporary extension of that. And that's deeply concerning to me. If you could, what, what are some examples that you try to use to illustrate uh, what we mean by woke capitalism? I don't know if you want to get into the uh, the, the sort of um, stuff with Colin Kaepernick or Gillette and their razor yeah. products, but um, maybe you could talk about a few examples. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Nike and Colin Kaepernick is an interesting, uh, an interesting thing. Um, in the sense that Nike completely, uh, obviously, you know, backed this with their big dream crazy uh, campaign. And this was a great uh, way in many ways of, of uh, amplifying the message of Black Lives Matter. And, you know, that's not anything that I would necessarily complain, complain about. But I think what we also have to bear in mind is that Nike is not the activist here. Nike took zero risk. Okay, they took a very calculated commercial decision in aligning with this this way, and that worked out very well for them. Colin Kaepernick took a risk. He was there, down on one knee, with Donald Trump telling the NRL to fire him and all that nonsense that went on at the time. And even before that, before him, the real you know the the real Black Lives activists, uh, Black Lives Matter activists who took who took the real risks of trying to make things happen. So. It's fine, Nike comes in at the end of the day, but corporations generally weigh in on these things where they've already, you know, they kind of figure they're on the right side of history. It's a commercial decision and it may amplify things, but but they're not the ones taking the action. So similarly, Gillette, you know, uh, comes in in terms of uh, Me Too and drawing attention to toxic masculinity. It wasn't, you know, the executives at Gillette who had to speak up and risk their careers against powerful, um, uh, powerful people like Harvey Weinstein. It wasn't the executives of, of Gillette who suffered this awful, um, uh, this this awful form of, of um, sexual abuse and harassment. So, it, you know, understandably, these things come in and it's it, it's supported publicly, but that's not where the real politics happens. The real politics happens much closer to, you know, much closer to real life are the people who take actual risks um, as activists. These are the people I would say we need to, we need to, to focus more on. Corporations will, will support things once, 
you know, the, 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 the basic rule, the iron rule of work capitalism, if you like, is that corporations will not back political causes that don't support their bottom line. And so this is another problem that I see with work capitalism, even though these causes, and for someone like me who, you know, um, is very, um, uh, is, is my, my own politics are progressive very explicitly, I make that explicit in the book um, as well. This is the kind of difficulty where you said before, you know, how come you came to, to write this book? It's like, hang on, I've been concerned about, you know, the growing power of corporations and what that means for for social and economic inequality for a long time. And suddenly these corporations are supporting my causes. <laughs> what, what's going on here? Something is worth investigating and it's investigating what's behind that um, uh, that, uh, that, that, that prompted me to, to start write, writing the book, um, if you like. So it's a complex thing where, uh, where we need to kind of look beneath the veneer. And the other thing, of course, is because of what I just described as, as the iron law of world capitalism, the, the problem too is that you've got to look at what causes don't corporations uh, support. And you'll see generally they're supporting uh, social causes, but not economic ones. We don't see any woke capitalisms arguing out about obscene CEO pay. Um, we don't see the value about universal basic income or income redistribution through progressive taxation or addressing the, the, uh, the, the terrible situation of massive corporate tax shopping and tax avoidance and in some cases tax evasions. They're not speaking out about you know the Panama Papers a few years ago. So the, it appears to be a new progressive agenda through through corporations, but it's only it's very very selective and very much not addressing basic issues of of uh, economic inequality and economic injustices. And I think that's where much more focus needs to be placed in in the world today. Inequality is 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 you know um together with climate and populism to my mind the three big problems that we have in the world so it's interesting since you mentioned activists uh who were for things like black lives matter and the me too movement i guess some people would say well isn't it great that these activists uh pushed so hard that now uh these corporations are having to take notice and, and sort of having to you know, to, to borrow the term uh, that was made popular by, by Kaepernick, make a knee and have to uh, take a stance. How would you respond to people uh, that sort of take that line? Yeah, I can, I can understand that too. And I remember when, you know, when the dream crazy thing came out, I, I felt in a similar way. But the, 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 the problem is, of course, you know, how can that change? Do we, you know, why is it that, why is it that wealthy institutions and individuals get to choose what's on the on the political agenda often you know at the expense of citizenship so this is the, the the kind of thing to think about it's fine you know if you're a supporter of black lives matter um and nike comes out with this campaign and you agree with them so you think that's good um but what about when corporations come up with things that you don't like and if you think about this for example you know the term work capital capital um uh, was initially coined by a, by a guy called Ross Dutat in the New York Times. And he made the very- yeah, He's a novel. sort of a conservative Catholic sort of figure along the lines of like um, Rod Dreher, the American conservative and figures like that. Indeed, he is, I know. But I mean, and this is an interesting thing because the observation he made was that this woke capitalism arose, arose um, 
during the Trump years, because Trump was going ahead, reducing corporate taxation and kind of increasing, you know, looking at tariffs and so forth in a way that benefited corporations financially. Corporations clearly quite happy about that, but in a sense, wanting to distance themselves from his more populist uh, extreme and very kind of unsavory uh, politics. And this was a way of, of balancing that out. And I think this is an interesting thing too. I mean, and to mention that, that, that this guy, Ross Dutet, is, uh, is conservative. It's almost as if, I think we need some agreement that whether you're on the right or the left, whether you're conservative or progressive, we still agree that we have to disagree within the context of a democratic system. And I think in some ways, this is why you get people like me criticizing uh, woke capitalism from a progressive perspective and conservatives like him uh, criticizing it from a more conservative perspective, but perhaps agreeing at least on the on the political arena, which which this is. I mean, this is very different from listening to, you know, Mark Rubio talk about crazy commies taking over the boardrooms as if, you know, weak will CEOs are being are being overcome by uh, by the conviction of activists. That's not that's so not what's what's going on. So even on the right, there are different different dimensions of of uh, of criticism again, which some of which are just kind of more of your rabble rousing variety and some which are a bit more well thought through. So it's interesting. Uh... Recently at uh, one of the uh, World Economic Forum conferences, I believe it was the one in 2020, uh, the big theme of that conference in, in Davos, which, you know, hosts the, you know, elite of the elites, essentially, uh, the big theme was stakeholder capitalism. And I guess in a lot of ways, when we're talking about uh, woke capitalism, what we're talking about is this idea of stakeholder capitalism. Maybe you could uh, explain to my audience, what is uh, stakeholder capitalism and how is it maybe um, portrayed as different by its proponents than uh, the sort of Milton Friedman uh, style of capitalism? Yeah, I mean, stakeholder capitalism is um, uh, directly in uh, contrast to shareholder capitalism. So shareholder capitalism is the idea that corporations exist for the benefit of the owners, the owners of capital, if you want to use that term, or, or um, shareholders, and that they should really spend all of their efforts, you know, increasing, uh, you know, maximizing the benefits to shareholders. This was- And that's uh, sort of the Friedmanite uh, sort of view of this. Yeah, it's the Friedmanite view that became very much entrenched uh, from the 1980s when Ronald Reagan was uh, in the US presidency and Margaret Thatcher in the UK, of which Friedman was actually an advisor. Um, and the idea of what they called at the time shareholder primacy. So there was a huge shift in these kind of early days of, of, uh, of neoliberalism towards benefit for, for the shareholder. This is a kind of Gordon Gecko, greed is good kind of um, capitalism. And that had been um, in place for a long time. Now, stakeholder capitalism, which to some extent developed out of the World Economic Forum um, and, and from Davos, but also uh, a few years ago, was adopted in the US by the Business Roundtable. The Business Roundtable is the club for chief executives of large organizations and suddenly said, no, we no longer just need to care about the benefits of shareholders. We also need to care about how, what the organization's impact on all kinds of stakeholders, customers, uh, employees, 
citizens as well as more abstract, you know, the environment and so forth. So the idea that the corporation has a much broader influence of of uh, of, of groups, the needs to whom it needs to uh, needs to focus on. So some people call it, you know, conscious uh, capital is another word. So stakeholder capitalism and woke capitalism. Yeah, I definitely kind of referring generally to the to the same phenomenon. Now, it's interesting, too, because with the conservative critique of uh, woke capitalism or stakeholder capitalism, I think there's this idea that, uh, you know, th this isn't real capitalism. And uh, th these wokists have uh, led the, you know, CEOs down a, a path of anti-capitalism. And you're saying, no, it's it's not exactly that. It's actually that, uh, you know, this capitalism is you know, real capitalism, and it's not actually addressing uh, a lot of the issues of inequity. Precisely the case. I mean, it is a version of capitalism more suited to the to the contemporary era. And you may talk about uh, about you know shareholders versus uh, stakeholders, uh, for example. But to to poorly borrow an expression from Orwell some stakeholders are more superior than others or more equal than others in his terms. So the idea, I think, is that if you look at an example of how this doesn't change capitalism, the pay of chief executives, if you look at uh, how this has changed over the years, the inequalities of executive pay massively increasing and increasing, if you look at the ratio of CEO to, to, to worker pay, this is massively increasing. And in a sense, inequalities having become so extreme you know the kind of inequalities in the us that led to to the conditions of possibility for for the trump era to exist because of the kind of suffering of, of uh regular people the suffering of, of working people unemployment you know loss of loss of industries and so forth capitalism had produced this this system that 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 that, that led led to this and by talk, but the rhetoric of stakeholder capitalism is kind of a way of saying, oh, well, we actually really care about everybody. And, it, and it, uh, there isn't the fear of communism that you might have found, you know, in the 1920s when, uh, you know, at the time of, of, uh, of the Bolsheviks. But there is, a, in a sense, a fear that the, the capitalist system has created so many inequalities that it has, it's at risk of destroying itself. So by putting a more milder view in terms of um, stakeholder capitalism, it's a way of preserving capitalism so it doesn't destroy itself. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of reading uh, um, Antonio Gramsci, he would have called this a passive revolution. It, it prevents real change from happening by making some concessions. So it's interesting, I know early on in the book, you uh, quote, I believe uh, the British journalist Helen Lewis uh, who talks about the iron law of woke capitalism. And she writes, uh, brands will gravitate toward low cost, high noise signals as a substitute for genuine reform. And then she goes on to say, those at the top who are disproportionately white, male, wealthy, and highly educated are not being asked to give up anything themselves. Uh, could you elaborate on that? Because that does seem to be the real uh, paradox here. Because uh, on one hand, you have these uh, corporate entities claiming uh, we're, we're going to make things more diverse and we're going to, you know, help everyone. We're the, the saviors, you know, um, uh, we, the elites are, are the saviors, not government, not the people. We're, we're the sort of people that are going to uh, help everyone out. 
um, and yet they're not being asked to give up anything uh, at all. So it, it seems very no. paradoxical. It, 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 uh, I mean, paradoxical in a sense, but in the context of of, uh, of, of history, perhaps quite predictable <laughs> as well in many ways. Yeah, there is nothing being given up. I mean, you know, as you said, you, you fly on your private jet emitting uh, loads of carbon to Davos to talk about climate change. Um, uh, and, you know, shake hands with Bono and, and, you know, politicians. So, yeah, there's nothing really being given up uh, at all here. And in a sense, I'm not against the free market. I'm not against capitalism per se. I mean, uh, you know, it leads to many kind of innovations and job creation. But again, when you look at the, the balance between, between politics and the public sphere and, um, and uh, business and corporations in the private sphere, we've seen in the last 40 years of neoliberalism, a gradual and increasing encroachment of private interests on politics in, in different ways to the kind of corporate lobbying and so forth that you, you would have seen before. I mean, you know, you, if you read um, Larry Fink from BlackRock's uh, each year, he writes a, a letter to CEOs of the companies he invests in. And he's been very clear. He's saying, you know, governments have failed and it's time for corporations to step up. And I think I tend to agree with him. Governments have failed and have increasingly withdrawn um, uh, from uh, from many aspects of, of, of uh, public life. I mean, you know, how, how like, can the corporations step up if that ends up hurting their bottom line? You know, like Jeff Bezos can say, uh, you know, oh, we're, we're going to have green consciousness. But what if that green consciousness actually hurt his bottom line? Would he keep going in that direction? Um, you know, I can't speak to the mind of Jeff Bezos, um, but if I was to hazard a guess, I would say if it harms his bottom line, he won't be doing it. And but there are some things that might need to be done that do harm the bottom line, that do harm the uh, the financial fortunes of, uh, of of the white male corporate elite uh, that that you mentioned before, um, and. It's not going to be achieved by, you know, by just running some, um, you know, um, unconscious bias training for people to go to for an hour or two. Isn't really going to change the fundamental structures of racism that exist in the society in the US, but also here in Australia and elsewhere. So what are some of the types of reforms that you think we do need to have that maybe uh, stakeholder capitalism can't necessarily provide? Well, I think we need, you know, it's taken us a long time to get to this problem. I would say it's taken, a, you know, at least if you look at the episode here, you know, it's taken us 40 years uh, or so to get here. So there's, you know, there's no point in looking at quick fixes or, or anything like that. But I think we need a renewed um, belief and a renewed appreciation of what democracy is all about. And I think my generation, I was born in the late 1960s, right? I think of myself as Generation N. That's Generation Neoliberalism. That's where I, you know, I went to, to, to university uh, first in 1984 um, at the height of the kind of Reagan Thatcher thing. People of my generation have, I gotta be honest, we failed to really address this. We either, even the things we disagree, we've kind of stood by and, and, and felt some sense of in inevitability. And that's what we were taught, you know, when, when it was the end of history, which Fukuyama was talking about when the Berlin Wall 
uh, fell, when the Soviet Union fell, it, there seemed to be a certain inevitability of the direction that, that we were going in. And if anything, if we look at what's happening now, this awful uh, situation in Ukraine with the, the Russian invasion and, you know, people dying, dying on the streets, that this is, the, the, you know, that's almost a kind of bookend um, uh, to what was going on back in 19, in the late 19, late 1980s. So I think, you know, I'm hoping that there'll be a new generation with a new political sensibility. And I do see this, you know, you see the kids who went out on, on strike with Greta Thunberg a few years ago. You know, I work in a university. When I see people coming, uh, you know, to the first year of university after having left school, there really is a, a quite different, uh, uh, different attitude, even to what there was five or 10 years ago. And I think, you know, my, my hope lies in, in this generational shift and a next generation of people who, who uh, won't put up with the things that my generation has put up with. Since you mentioned the term neoliberal, I always have to do this because I think a lot of people hear that term and they're immediately maybe mystified by it or they don't understand what it means. What do we mean when we say the term uh, neoliberal? And then I, I want to get into uh, talking about democracy a bit more because I think that's becoming increasingly important. But maybe you could explain what the neoliberal term was. Um, and I, I yeah. think in a lot of ways you can sum it up with um, what Margaret Thatcher once said, right? I, I think it was Thatcher that said there is no alternative. Uh, you know, all, all we could have is, uh, you know, maybe small fixes to the problems that we have now. But, you know, the, the system can't be radically reformed in any way, really. Yeah, I mean, I think what Thatcher was saying with that statement is that there's no alternative to kind of entrepreneurial market capitalism and this increasing trust that the notion of the market was the solution to all problems. Um, and this is where we saw the massive growth, you know, it was a, the dawn of the expansion of neoliberal globalization, you know, tariffs being reduced, markets being liberated, as in neoliberalism, um, corporations being liberated, um, uh, deregulation, privatization. So you have these changes in the economy, which which actually are a lot that you'd align with classic laissez-faire liberalism. But the part of the difference with neoliberalism is that this is not now just a matter of how economic life is organized, but also it, it starts implicating how we understand social relations as being about about individualism, hyper-individualism, you know, there's no such thing as society, another great quote from Thatcher, um, and that you get this competitive individualism um, and a retreat from community, a retreat from society comes hand in hand. So with neoliberalism, you get a kind of, this economic liberalism and globalization on a scale it hasn't been seen before, but that's, that's matched with social changes about how we see ourselves to the point almost just as corporations pursue their self-interest so should we it's almost as if selfishness has become a virtue um uh, during uh, quoting years. ayn rand a bit there <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure which bit of ayn rand you're you're referring to but I'm, well she, she wrote that essay uh the, i think it was called the virtue of selfishness and i've often told uh, yes, people in yes. a way Ayn Rand has won. Um, yeah. that, that has become the virtue in neoliberal society. Yeah. I mean, and in fact, I hate to, to say anything, anything vaguely possible about Rand, but, uh, but there was, you know, perhaps some uh, predicting of the future going on with, with uh, as Atlas was shrugging. So then, you know, the, the other issue here is uh, your book is a lot about 
uh, the effects of this woke capitalism on democracy. And I want to talk about what we mean even uh, by democracy, because I think democracy and freedom are two terms that get thrown around a lot now uh, by like politicians. But what do we mean by those terms? They've become these, I feel, empty terms in a lot of ways. I said to someone recently, uh, we talk about democracy, but how much do we experience in everyday life? Uh, you know, when you go to the workplace, are you in a democratic workplace? Uh, no, it's really sort of top down. Your boss tells you what to do and you do it. Um, yeah. So, you know, in a lot of ways, we're not nearly as democratic in our daily lives as we even think. So what should we be thinking about when we talk about democracy and what should we mean by it? Yeah, I mean, there's a number. I, I would say there's two main things to think about. One is democracy as a political system. Um, which means, you know, you have uh, elections and your, your leader is voted in and, and as such can always be voted out. It's about the rule of law and, you know, the separation of powers and the kind of apparatus there of, uh, of democracy. And this is liberal democracy in particular. On the other hand, and I'm, you know, very influenced here by the American philosopher John Dewey, you have the idea of democracy is also a way of life, a way of life that involves you know, uh, respect for difference, that involves tolerance, that involves community, that involves caring about others, that, be that believes in, in freedom. And, and in a sense, if you look, uh, but not just freedom, I mean, and when we talk about democracy and freedom, we're not specifically talking about individual liberty, like I can go and do whatever the hell I want and how it affects you is irrelevant because I'm free. That's, that's one particular dimension of freedom, but it, it's it's about freedom from oppression. I mean, the, you know, if you look at if you look at American democracy, it was about self-determination and freedom from the British colonial powers. If you look at the dawn of French democracy, it was about freedom from the kind of you know uh, aristocratic uh, powers and the, the, the kind of plutocratic uh, uh, approach. Which, by the way, well, capitalism is taking us dangerously back to that kind of plutocracy. So there's. Democracy as a political system, and as democracy then as a way of life, and how we how we relate to each other, and that we respect differences, um, uh, and again believe in freedom, but also equality. I mean, often you know, then there's there's uh, there's often a conflict in a sense between liberty and equality, because if I'm free to do whatever I want, then I can go and take as big a slice of the economic pie as I can meaning that you have a smaller price. So there's a lot of tensions within this as well. But I think it's important to see those two sides, the formal political side, but also just the cultural side as well. So what do you think the major effect of uh, sort of woke capitalism, or even, I, I, even pulling on that thread you mentioned earlier, how is woke capitalism bringing us dangerously back to uh, plutocracy and away from democracy? So plutocracy, by definition, of course, is, is that uh, the rule by rich people. Um, and this has traditionally, in many societies, been the case. The, the, the king and queen, uh, for example, um, are the people who are the rulers and they're the landowners and the rich. Uh, the rich and then the rest of society, this is in the context of European history, um, uh, you know, peasants and, and serfs and so forth, and with various positions in between. But the idea is that the person who is the political ruler is the ruler on account of, of a, a, a system that's connected to, to wealth and to kind of historical family. And that, you know, if, if I'm the ruler today, 
then when I stop being the ruler because you know I die, for example, then it's 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 one of my children who who becomes ruler. So you have this perpetuation of wealth, and even then, it's you know landholders and landlords who 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 uh, are wealthy. Sorry, who who are in charge? And democracy is a system that is directly opposed to this. That says sovereignty. You know the the ultimate. Uh, answerability of any society is not to people who are rich, is not to people who have particular social or class positions, but the idea of popular sovereignty. And it's, you know, as um, uh, you know, of the people, from the people, for the people um, approach. So the, the people are ultimately in charge. And that's obviously why we have democratic representatives um, who, not that they necessarily do it that well, but at least notionally are intended uh, to represent the people. So it's a complete difference. But when you see large corporations and even or more particularly billionaires starting to have more and more political control, again, it seems we're moving, we're kind of backsliding to a plutocracy that, that democracy overthrew uh, those hundreds of, of years ago. And, you know, they say that, you know, if you don't remember history, you're condemned to repeat it. And if anything, you know, part of my book is about trying to remember history. You also have an entire chapter on uh, woke capitalism when it meets racial capitalism. So maybe you could describe what we mean by racial capitalism and what happens when the two end up intersecting with each other. Yeah, I mean, um, racial capitalism, obviously not my term. Um, um, Cedric Robinson is, is a particularly influential scholar in, in this regard, is looking at the intersection of race and capitalism, and particularly how, uh, how you know, if you look at the, the early days of, of, of uh, the economy in the US, obviously was, was built on, on slavery. It's a racial economic system, um, but even subsequent to that, looking at how race relations uh, intersect and racial differences, intersect with uh, with capitalism in that way and, and and in a sense how capitalism can serve to to uh, prevent racial equality in, in many ways I mean someone recently made a joke to me saying that uh, you can tell that you have diversity in American company because they have a short white man on the board of directors instead of just tall white men um, I mean, that's just a bit of a quip, and that's not technically true. But the idea that that, that there is um, that there is this kind of racial capitalism. So this also then connects with woke capitalism because uh, issues of race relations uh, have been a central issue uh, that, that uh, corporations have been become involved in. And you know, the Nike example with Colin Kaepernick um, uh, is is key here. Um, but again. Has this resulted in any fundamental changes? Um, uh, potentially not. So, in a sense, you know, the idea that woke capitalism actually makes any fundamental structural changes to the to the, uh, the, the, the racial structures of society, there's no evidence of that uh, to be seen. Also, you mentioned uh, Larry Fink earlier, and I, I believe uh, BlackRock gets mentioned uh, in your book uh, a number of times. I, I think I counted 49 times it shows up. Uh, why is BlackRock so important to uh, your sort of study of this idea of uh, woke capitalism? 
I think it's, I mean, it's important. Uh, I hadn't counted those times, so thanks for uh, thanks for that. Um, I think it's because the it's not because it's necessarily remarkable. I mean, obviously, it's a big investment fund, but. It, but it is very well known, and yeah, yeah. But it's well known because the the head of BlackRock, Larry Fink, is very vocal um, in his support of uh, a variety of of social causes. Very vocal in in his support of uh, corporations getting involved in, you know, decarbonization and uh, and um, uh, you know financial equality and other so you know so called woke things. So he's he lays out the case probably um, uh, much more clearly and explicitly than many other people do. So it's kind of worth interrogating. The other thing that he, he does differently, he very specifically says that corporations need to step in where governments leave off. So he makes a very explicit case in terms of the relationship between corporations and uh, businesses. And each year he writes this letter to CEOs and, and he actually says that, you know, he, he his company won't invest in corporations if they don't abide by the the kind of conditions that he sets out. Interestingly, though, his letter this year, just a few months or so ago, was a little bit different because people had been he'd been afraid of being accused of being woke, and he very much says stakeholder capitalism is capitalism. It does benefit the shareholders. So he actually even lays clear what's happening. So in many ways, what he's describing. And what I'm describing aren't necessarily that different. It's just the value judgment you put against it is different. So I think he probably appears so much because he does lay down a much more explicit and well-developed case for what he's doing than you get from, you know, Pepsi doing ads about Black Lives Matter. It's funny because I was recently interviewing uh, the uh, global economics correspondent for the New York Times, uh, Peter Goodman about his book, uh, Davos Man, How uh, Billionaires Devoured the World. And it was funny because we talked about Klaus Schwab, uh, who of course founded the World Economic Forum. And one thing that's very interesting about Davos is that when Trump uh, famously went to Davos, I believe in 2018, uh, Klaus Schwab defended him and said, oh, people have biased interpretations and, and Trump is actually inclusive. I think that moment really lays a lot there when it comes to this uh, whole milieu of people who uh, claim to be, you know, the the woke elites. Yeah, and um, that, I've read this book as well. Uh, it is it is a great book that I, I would recommend uh, to anyone. I mean, the, you know, the World Economic Forum. Ultimately, it's very kind of interesting. A very very influential um, uh, um, event. Very inter influential institution. Uh, Schwab being very influential, but it's it's peak neoliberalism. I mean, this is the belief that the market is the answer to everything. Um, uh, you know, there's never, you know, you don't see the, the Davos man ever pursuing um, uh, approaches to solving problems that involve, you know, consensus, that involve regulation, that involve democratic God forbid labor organization. <laughs> well, this is the thing, even if you look, yeah, um, and this is always, the, this is another interesting thing too, if you look at, in the US case, how organizations like Starbucks, I believe, and Amazon, the kind of effort they put in to prevent unionization, to prevent people from exercising the basic human right 
uh, of labor to organize is astounding, but very consistent with woke capitalism, because in woke capitalism, the capitalists, uh, you know, the benevolent uh, business owners, uh, the benevolent super rich are going to look after everybody because they believe in, in stakeholder capitalism. And I don't know, sounds like a bit of a con to me. So before we start closing out, uh, I have to ask this question just so I can reference uh, one of the brilliantly titled uh, chapters of your book. Why exactly is uh, all that glitters not green? <laughs> uh, okay, thank you. Um, the idea here, I mean, obviously a key part of, of woke capitalism is its, its connection to um, uh, sustainability, environment, climate change, and uh, so green in a sense. And so it's really a reference to what some people call, you know, greenwashing and the idea that corporations will present themselves in a, in a way that uh, makes them look uh, environmentally friendly. But actually when you dig into it, there might be a bit more going on. So if you take, for example, Jeff Bezos, you mentioned before the, uh, the Earth Fund where he pledged, I think $6 billion, which is the biggest uh, philanthropic pledge of all time. Now, bearing in mind, Amazon as a business, uh, as much as anything, transportation that is, that is driven by fossil fuels is central to the whole business model, right? It's about, I mean, so is, you know, these, inhumane warehouse practices but as well as that it's it's uh, a question of being able to i order my i don't know new ipad and i want it to be arriving at my house you know uh this afternoon if i order through amazon so so when jeff bezos looks at you know issuing uh, concern about the climate you can appreciate that what happens to energy, what happens to fossil fuels, what that means for transportation is also central to, to the business interests of Amazon. So you have to kind of question this as well. Or you might want to think of um, uh, a few years ago when, when the Volkswagen emission scandal, where Volkswagen had been pr promoting themselves as a purveyors of green diesel and, and being you know sustainability, they won every award under the sun. And then it was revealed that the uh, the low emissions that they reported from their from uh, selected vehicles was entirely um, uh, fraudulent, based on some technical fixes that they made to test conditions. So the idea is that when corporations present themselves as being green, not to say I mean you know many corporations doing great things, especially more more and more so now in terms of dealing with the environment, as they should. It's industrial capitalism which caused these problem so it's changes to the operation of capitalism which will also uh solve them but at the same time don't take don't take it for granted um and just as all that glitters is not gold it's true the case that all that glitters isn't necessarily green one thing that is really interesting to me is that uh, as you know uh, the the first i think documented use of the term woke is in a 1962 New York Times piece by the African-American novelist uh, William Melvin Kelly, and that's called yeah. If You're Woke, You Dig It. And what's interesting is we have a lot of talk about uh, this issue of cultural appropriation today. What's interesting to me is I feel like, uh, you know, these corporations often run by white men uh, have actually appropriated uh, the term woke and just turned it into a brand. They've actually taken the sort of ethos out of it. 
Exactly. And an even more interesting example, I mean, that's true from 1962. Although, interestingly, he doesn't really define what it means. This is obviously a, a kind of word that's being used in the African-American idiom. Um, and as has historically been the case, the, the meaning is kept secret from, uh, uh, from white people. But in 1965, Martin Luther King gave a speech, which he called um, Remaining Awake Through the Great Revolution. And he talks about the old tale that you may remember from, from being a, a little fella called um, of Rip Van Winkle. And you recall Rip Van Winkle goes to sleep uh, during the time that King George III, you know, that America was still a British colony. And I think he sees the picture of George III on the wall as the, the head, of, uh, head of state effectively. And then he goes for his long, long sleep and he sleeps for, I don't know, many years. And when he wakes up, What's happened while he's been asleep is the American Revolution. And so when he wakes up, he looks on the same wall and he sees a picture of George Washington, the first US president. And you know, Martin Luther King uses this story to say, well, um, Rip Van Winkle slept through the revolution. He wasn't awake to the revolution. And he, draw, he draws a parallel here with the, with the civil rights movement. And so he's drawing on this idea of being awake and being awake to the socio-political things that are going on, being, being awake to what's happening around you. And so Martin Luther King says in this speech that when it comes to the civil rights movement at the time in 1965, don't be asleep to the revolution like Rip Van Winkle was. So you see this notion of being awake as being kind of aware and conscious of, of what's going on. And that was picked up really in the Black Lives Matter movement in, in 2013. You may recall that this was, you know, the first political activism, which was which of which social media became a big influence and the hashtag stay woke, meaning in the same mean kind of meaning uh, that Martin Luther King was using of being aware of what's going on, being politically aware, particularly being aware of of uh, of, of uh, race relations, racial discrimination, racial violence, and 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 how to, to change that. But it became so popular that it became mainstreamed, and everyone was starting to use woke just generally to mean awareness. But it soon got turned around, and it became an insult. It, so the original meaning, the kind of awakeness that Luther, Martin Luther King was talking about, completely got turned around, and it started to mean, to use another recent term, virtue signaling. And to call someone woke means that they talk about these kind of fashionable politics, but it's really kind of superficial and they don't mean it. And it's that pejorative meaning that people who who call corporations woke, I don't think these days, given how this meaning, the, the, the meaning of this word has changed, you don't see anyone calling themselves woke. It's pretty rare. It's generally now considered an insult. So a word that had tremendous political meaning, that had tremendous uh, political impact, up through the the Black Lives Matter movement in the in, in the wake of the um, uh, the killing of Trayvon Martin, has been completely uh, taken over and kind of bastardized um, in this way. I was going to say too. I'm glad you mentioned Martin Luther King because one thing that I've always noticed uh, when I was growing up, we talked about Martin Luther King and his work in the civil rights movement um, when I was in school. But one thing we never covered was just how radical he was. I mean, he was anti-war. Uh, he was for economic yeah. justice. He believed that the economic justice, anti-war, and civil rights movements needed to come together. I mean, he really believed in revolution. I would say he was uh, a socialist. And, you know, it's interesting because I don't think we're given that picture of Martin Luther King in our education anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I can't speak to education in the US, but I think I think more generally, yeah, the, the, and, and the, the really the, the radicalness of, of that whole time in the 60s is just, yeah, has been kind of uh, watered down and, and now- And in some cases commodified. Now now everyone's wearing Che Guevara shirts, you know, at least when I was a teenager. You know? Yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, the posters on your wall. So yeah, it comes to forgetting, or even, you know, um, um, you know, even people like Muhammad Ali refusing to to go to uh, to war because he saw he saw the, the fight that he had to make being against white America, not against uh, the Vietnam War. And I won't use the word. But he said, you know, no Vietnam, no Viet Cong ever called me names um, like he'd experienced at, at, at home, or you know. Um, uh, so yeah, that radicality, and again, even with him, his radicalness, and even you know his the, the controversy over his uh, conversion to Islam, similar kind of radicalness at a level, um, in a sense, again gets washed over now, and he's you know just remembered uh, to many people just as one of the great boxers of all time. But there's so much more going on. So in many, you know, those those kind of histories get uh, diluted um, in many ways. So closing out here, it's interesting. Uh, you have a whole chapter on uh, getting woke to woke capitalism, and I want to talk about that briefly. But I also wanted to mention, I don't think you're the only person uh, on the left or, or the sort of progressive end of the political spectrum uh, that is starting to take notice of this issue. And uh, there's this whole concept that's arisen that you mentioned in the book a few times uh, called woke washing. And I think people mm. are calling attention to woke washing. And it's not necessarily... Uh, the Tucker Carlson people doing that. It's people on the progressive end of the spectrum saying, hey, you're just using all this woke stuff for branding. Yeah, and e but even in that chapter, Getting Woke to Woke Capitalism, where I'm clearly trying to you know, use the original term of woke, I talk about Elizabeth Warren, um, who's a mainstream American politician, um, who actually um, held up the, uh, the, the business round table and said, look, you're talking about stakeholder capitalism and she wrote to them pretty much saying what the hell have you actually done calling them to account so even even in mainstream politics there is this uh this uh, this awareness um as well so i think there is an increasing awareness and i make no claim to like be the only person who's ever said this i mean you know hopefully i'm i'm uh joining a more more general um awareness that we really need to pay attention uh to the role of business in society and and without doing so we might lose some of the most valuable uh, uh characteristics or at least most valuable i mean democracy is never something that's ever fully realized democracy is something you have to constantly work at you can think of it like as a it's like a horizon you know if you decide to walk towards the horizon you don't do it with the intention of ever arriving at the horizon because it's never there but it becomes a motivating factor and and uh uh, a kind of inspiration, and, and if you like, but to lose to lose sight of that is, I think, what what we're in danger of. If we just if we just say, well, let's look at which corporations we happen to agree with, and you know, we'll we'll be uh, we'll be good with with those. Are you able to explain as well that concept of uh, woke washing? Yeah. So woke washing is is really it's an adaptation of the term greenwashing. So greenwashing, obviously, where corporations take on environmental uh, causes in order to make them look good, where really the core of what they do doesn't really change very much. And similarly, workwashing would be a corporation engaging at some 
superficial level in um, uh, in 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 making statements, for example, or advertising around uh, progressive causes, but without really changing anything underlying in, in how how they operate. So one example would be Pepsi was criticized along these lines uh, some years ago when they came out with the ad where the ad was set during a Black Lives Matter march. And I think it was Caitlyn Jenner had a bottle of Pepsi and started handing some to the police and the police and the protesters suddenly all you know, we're living in harmony. I mean, it's I mean, it's so stupid in one sense and, and facile um, that everyone saw through it. Um, uh, but that would be one example for, you know, that people would criticize as work washing. There's not really a genuine commitment to any real change there. It's just the kind of, in this case, you know, people sometimes call as much as it's work washing, it can be referred to as black lives marketing. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that Coca-Cola commercial, because the next thing I, I wanted to say just before we finish out here is uh, I was thinking throughout this conversation of a very old 1970s Coca-Cola commercial. Um, I'd like to teach the world to sing where it's all people yeah. from all different walks of life and all different cultures and races uh, coming together and singing about how great Coca-Cola is and how much they want a Coca-Cola. Uh, and it, thinking about that, I, I kind of wonder, you know, I think advertising has played with, uh, oh, we're down with being woke and, you know, uh, selling to the youth through this idea of uh, being woke uh, for years now, for decades even. Um, mm. Is this sort of, uh, you know, commodification of wokeness an entirely new thing in that sense? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I remember that ad from a kid too. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. So, a kind of example of, of a particular approach to uh, to different. So, I don't think it's entirely new. I think just the the prevalence of it today is much uh, is much broader, and it's much more. It's, it's kind of deeper and more more widespread than perhaps ever it was. I think people involved in advertising will always try and key into uh, what they see as fashionable things as the day of the day to be to be associated to be associated with. Um, but again, this ad about teaching the world to sing, um, which is which was kind of in the early 70s, I think. So it was kind of a bit hippie kind of, you know, everything is beautiful in its own way kind of kind that of approach. That was from 1971, that, actually, very early 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the, the 60s would still have been very uh, alive in their minds. But that is, again, that is that is still quite different, to, for example, to what you see in Gillette's ad, where it's very much directly dealing with with um, with with things in a, in a more direct and extreme way. So I think it has, I don't know about always been there, um, but it's, there are certainly examples in the past as well, um, as you suggest, Nike. Uh, um, has long been been doing this kind of thing well before the recent fad for woke capitalism. I think they were the uh, first people to have an openly gay man in one of their their advertisements. So really, have been at the forefront of of these kind of things. And again, we can't just condemn condemn that out of out of hand. But at the same time, that was going on. There were a whole lot of questions being raised about slave labor or and unfair work conditions in the factories that made the shoes as well. So it's a selective politics um, in a sense, which as I've said before, doesn't necessarily address some of the more core economic matters of business. If I could, I wanna end on this note. I wanna read uh, a very brief uh, part of your book. 
where you talk about the um, whole Gillette ad campaign. Uh, you're right. Ultimately, Gillette intended to increase the popularity of its products among a new generation of consumers so that it could increase its share of a shrinking market for shaving products. Me Too was a vehicle for it to do that. That is the best a woke corporation can be. And I, I think that's a rather um, insightful point you make there. I mean, it can't do much more than that. We need more systemic change if we want actual change to occur. Yeah, and that's not going to come from corporations. And yeah, Gillette was, is looking for. I mean, I know for your for your listeners here, they're just hearing us, but I can actually see you on Zoom, and I notice we are both unshaven, not having used any Gillette products uh, for at least several days. And I think, that, and in part, it, it was this. You know, the, the shaving's not as popular as it as it used to be. So yeah, and again, that's not to say that the people who produced this ad didn't really genuinely as individuals believe that toxic masculinity is a bad thing that things need to be addressed that that boys need to to be taught different things uh growing up you know there's no reason to doubt the 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 genuineness of that but it all gets filtered through a business case model and it's that business case model that determines um what gets in the ad and and what doesn't and that fundamentally is not uh um, uh, is not a democratic way of doing things. That that we're, that all our that, that what gets political airtime is is the things that are that that, that are beneficial to uh, to the wealth of a corporation or the, the, the success of a corporation. In, in other words, in some ways, you're interrogating what the limits of what capitalism actually are. Yes, and in, in a sense, again, you know, we live in the nexus between market capitalism and liberal democracy. And if we think of, of you know, the political task of, of balancing those limits, it seems to me to be pushing where the economic is increasingly encroaching on the liberal democratic. And you know, to push back on that and to, to restore uh, a reasonable balance, or in some cases to create that balance for the first time, um, is a very important uh, political task, but one that I don't think is really being attended to adequately. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Professor Carl Rhodes, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners uh, get a hold of the book, Woke Capitalism? And what do you hope that my listeners get out of the conversation we've been having for the past hour or so? Well, the book is published by Bristol University Press. Um, so you can buy it uh, uh, directly from them, or it's obviously available online. I would encourage you to use independent sellers rather than some of the companies who have been mentioned in uh, one of the companies who's been mentioned in today's in today's discussion. Uh, you know, my book doesn't offer any knockdown solutions to all this. It's about it's about trying to understand the situation. But again, by understanding the situation that we're in, we're able to operate in it differently. We're able to act differently. So if there's anything I would hope that uh, that people would get out of this, it would be Get it, uh, to use the, the, the chapter title that you referred to is Get Woke to Woke Capitalism. Thank you again, Carl Rhodes, for coming on Parallax Views. Entirely my pleasure. Next up, Nolan Higdon joins us to discuss his new book co-authored with Nicholas Baham III, The Podcaster's Dilemma decolonizing podcasters 
in the age of surveillance capitalism. Nolan is a friend of the show who has worked with Project Censored. So with that being said, let's get right to it with Nolan Higdon on The Podcaster's Dilemma, Decolonizing Podcasters in the Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Welcome back to Parallax Use, the guest that I've been meaning to have back on, um, but it, it's been a very busy year for both of us. Uh, Dr. Nolan Higdon, who has multiple new books out in the past year, including the one we're going to be talking about, uh, The Podcaster's Dilemma, Decolonizing Podcasters in the Era of Surveillance Capitalism, and also Let's Agree to Disagree, a Critical Thinking Guide to Communication Conflict Management and Critical Media Literacy, co-authored uh, with friend of the show, Mickey Huff. And also, uh, The Podcaster's Dilemma is also a book uh, that's co-authored you, and um, I'm blanking on the name. Oh, Nick, Nicholas Baham III. Okay, hopefully he will forgive me if he hears this, and I blanked <laughs> on that. <laughs> so how have you been doing, um, Dr. Higdon, and what is going on in your mind when it comes to the state of the media right now? Well, thanks for having me back on the program. Um, always a pleasure to be here. Love tuning in all the great work you do. A lot of the interviews you do, um, I use and think about um, often. Um, well, I, right I noticed now that I came up in the uh, the podcaster's dilemma book at least once. So I was just <laughs> I was just gonna say, yeah, you were a um, part of the text as well. Um, you know, uh, Nick and I had a podcast along the line, um, and. When we were going through it, you know, Nick doesn't really come from a media background and he kept saying like, has anybody looked at this space? There's like so much great work going on here. And, you know, I did like this sort of, you know, scholarly thing. And I went to the literature review and I said like, you know, man, nobody's really written about the new media and podcasters. They've written about like, you know, how you can use podcasting in the classroom or they've written about how to make a podcast, but nobody's really talked about these folks who are doing this like, radical substantive work in the podcasting space and so that was kind of the, the genesis of the book and yeah you were definitely a, a key actor or character in the book for sure so let's talk about how you came to write this book uh because i don't know i i think a lot of people look at podcasting and they're like uh podcasters everyone's a podcaster now what's it matter uh so what's your response to the sort of uh I guess the dim view a lot of people have of podcasting. Well, in interestingly enough, um, like when people say everybody has a podcast, I think they feel that way because within the last year, especially, but uh, sorry, last two years, especially with COVID, um, a lot of famous people, celebrities, legacy media personalities, they got podcasts. Um, but, I, but I think what people neg neglect or don't recognize is that there was a sophisticated substantive podcast space prior to all those celebrities jumping in. And the reason why these already famous people jumped into this space is because it was so popular. Um, you have a lot of, you know, podcasters who folks who don't uh, visit the space often won't know the name of, but they pull in like primetime audiences that are on par with legacy media television, for example. So the podcasting space is very popular. It's, it's very influential. Um, and, you know, we didn't know this going in, but as we were writing the text, interestingly, this, this battle started to emerge between legacy media and new media. 
in a very pronounced way. Um, I think Joe Rogan sort of became the face of that because he has, you know, one of the largest podcast audiences, but, but he's hardly alone in this. Folks in the podcasting space are now finding themselves attacked by legacy media, sometimes critiqued accurately, but often like critiqued unfairly. Um, and I think it speaks to the threat that this podcasting space is to legacy media's monopoly on audiences. So in that regard, what do you think the, the threat that podcasting is uh, to legacy media? Because uh, that's a lot to unpack there. For sure. I think um, podcasters, the popularity of podcasters kind of uh, emaciates all the claims that legacy media made to justify their power and monopolization on information, right? So mass media said like, yeah, we have like, the, you know, the best editorial standards. We, we promote, you know, truth over fiction. Meanwhile, people have more faith in some of these podcasters than they do in legacy media. Um, legacy media said, yeah, we're the only ones who have the money to do, uh, to, you know, to get to the most places, to do high quality broadcasting. Yeah, people are tuning into podcasts that are often like kind of crudely recorded with no graphics and uh, they're interested. Legacy media always said, yeah, the reason why we have so many commercial breaks and we talk to people like they're in sixth grade is because audiences aren't that smart. They have short attention spans. You got podcasters who are doing like three hour interviews with like, you know, PhD experts in the field about something and, you know, common folks are tuning in and, and they can't get enough of it, right? They're tuning into these people. And at the same time, they're drawing audiences that are the same size as legacy media. So I think in a lot of ways, the, the podcasting space um, has really shown a lot of how vapid uh, legacy media talking points have been over the previous decades. So I know you mentioned Joe Rogan. Rogan, though, has a leg up, I think, uh, compared to some podcasters, because, I mean, he, he was a celebrity uh, before his podcasting career. He was a comedian and involved with UFC. Who are some of the other podcasters who maybe uh, didn't have as much of a leg up and are doing something really substantial with their podcasting? Who are some of the voices that you cover? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. Um, you know, we mentioned in the book that um, this isn't a book about the Joe Rogans of the podcasting space. Um, <clears throat> you know, we're looking for people who are you know, kind of radically deconstructing um, a lot of uh, mainstream discourses. Rogan does do some of that with some of his guests, but we're looking for people who do it in a much more radical sense. Um, we, we did find that um, of the people we ended up finding on the internet, a vast majority of them had some history of being journalists or writers, usually in legacy media. Some of them had maybe like smaller known personas in legacy media. I'm thinking of people like Crystal Ball, right? Who was on MSNBC for a brief time. She did some work at the Hill that was very famous. Um, but now she's in this like independent space. So um, it's not to say these people have no background, but I think you're right to point out that um, people in our book don't come from as much fame as like a Joe Rogan. And Joe, Joe Rogan's previous fame does make him somewhat of an outlier um, in the space. But um, yeah, we covered people like, you know, Crystal Ball, um, who does now Breaking Points. She used to do Rising with um, Sagar and Getty. Um, you know, they do a populist right, populist left analysis of news content. Um, so they're critiquing the Democrats and Republicans from the left and the right. Um, you know, we have Bad Faith by Brianna Joy Gray. Uh, this is someone who was a staff writer or a communications team for the Bernie Sanders campaign who became a journalist um, and now does the podcasting space. Um, to try and host uncomfortable situations, right? She tries to get real disagreements done in a constructive manner in the podcasting space. 
Um, you know, we go through folks like Useful Idiots, where Matt Taibbi and Katie Halper do some incredible work. Um, and then there's like even lesser known podcasts that draw um, large audiences as well, like Latinos Who Lunch, um, which use food. I'm not familiar and- with that one. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. um, they, they represent a, um, a uh, portion of the podcasting space we found that, that uses food as a way to examine dominant culture. Um, to critique dominant culture. And they did it from the perspective of um, Latinos in America. So this Latinos Who Lunch was a podcast. Um, so yeah, it was that that type of, um, these are the type of podcasts we ultimately ended up finding. Real quick, uh, I, I wanted to get into some of those other lesser known ones, because I think people know, at least my listeners know the the Katie Helpers and the Matt Taibes and, and the Brianna Joy Grays, but uh, you named one there that was uh, sort of uh, maybe more niche, uh, but are, are there some other ones that we can point to in the book? For sure. Yeah, we cover um, <clears throat> we cover a lot of different um, podcasts. I'm thinking of like um, Two Dope Queens is a good one as well. Um, from Hood Rat to Head Rap is another good one as well. <laughs> so I think they record out of... Um, New York, if I remember correctly. Uh, so yeah, there's, um, and the book lists all these different um, podcasters as well. I know I'm forgetting like a ton as I'm, as I'm going through these. Um, there's a great um, uh, podcast about like patriarchy. We looked at like the Guilty Feminist, for example. It was a really good podcast. Um, there's critiques of capitalism, like Capitalism um, is a good one. <laughs> Um, and so uh, there's there's also not just ones that generally speak about race and ethnicity, but like I mentioned, Latinos who lunch. Um, there's an Asian American um, podcast that's called Self Evident Asian American Stories, um, and um, things like that. There's like uh, some that are about empire. Obviously, Abby Martin does the Empire Files, for example. Uh, one of the things I we found. Good. I was going to say what's interesting, and the reason I I was kind of honing in on the lesser known ones is I, I think, and, and my podcast does this too, but I think that, uh, you know, Useful Idiots and Brianna Joy Gray's show and, and these other shows, a lot of us um, were broadly focused. Whereas I think in the podcasting world, there's a lot of podcasts that can just simply devote to uh, more narrow topics. Uh, so you can have a whole podcast devoted to um, critiquing ableism or, uh, critiquing patriarchy. And I, I think that's where things get really interesting uh, with the podcasting space. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, and that's what our, our book largely um, tried to focus upon. Like, what are these dominant, um, what are these dominant ideologies that these podcasts are breaking down, right? We found, you know, podcasts that are, are focused on um, going after capitalism. We found podcasts that are focused on going after white supremacy, focused on um, patriarchy, and as you mentioned, ableism. And um, I think this speaks to your your earlier question, right? You asked about uh, what's the threat from this podcasting space, right? Well, since the advent of cable, the idea that you were gonna have like a whole television show dedicated to talking about Latino culture through food you probably wouldn't be able to sell that to advertisers at the cable industry. But in the podcasting world, you can take a risk and put that online and see if it draws audiences, 
right? And it is drawing like the, these audiences. And so I think that's another kind of thread is there's a lot more um, ability to play with ideas that seem out of the realm of possibility in the legacy media space. So what's interesting to me is uh, now I think we have big podcasting, which uh, is to say we have, uh, you know, I think even Hillary Clinton uh, has started a podcast now. So now you have big money uh, putting itself into the podcasting world. What does this mean uh, for smaller podcasts? And also, uh, we'll get into this later, but the, the sort of um, decolonizing podcasts. Yeah, Um well, this is one of the things we kind of wrestled with in the in the text, right? It's it's titled "The Podcaster's Dilemma." Um, you know, Nick is an eternal my co-author is an eternal optimist. Um, I tend to be uh, quite skeptical, ranging to pessimistic. Um, you know, and he he wanted uh, rightly to to speak to our celebration of these podcasts. We love these podcasters. We love this space. You know, we love listening to these these folks, um, and it was a fun fun opportunity. But at the same time, I always have my critical brain on and I said, you know, if this space really is a space of resistance, it's not going to last too long before it's under attack. And one of the forms of attack that you're speaking to is the commercialization, right? Um, Tim Wu, of all people, wrote a great book about this, talking about the cycle of media, that when a new medium is introduced, everybody rushes toward it um, to use and and its uh, revolutionary possibilities. And in that, there's there's a great um, expansion of interest, right? So audiences are interested in what's going on. And once commercial once commercial entities see that interest, they try and buy it up and make it into a commercial entity, which turns people off. They turn against said medium, and then it's on to the next medium where the cycle begins again. My fear was this is what's going to happen to the, the podcasting um, space. And just for the reasons you pointed out, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, these folks having podcasts, maybe not Pete Buttigieg, because I've listened to Pete Buttigieg, but other folks, they they could draw like audiences um, with both their popularity and oratory skills. Um, And uh, we see this happening already, right? Like MSNBC has really been chomping at the bit to to get into this space. Um, At one point, they thought uh, Nicole Wallace was going to be the savior of podcasting for MSNBC. I'm a little skeptical if uh, Wallace will draw in that young audience, but, but um, nonetheless, I, right. I was going to say, I think even uh, Rachel Maddow has her own podcast now. <laughs> Maddow. Yeah. Maddow for sure. Um, uh, the pod save America, Obama boys. I mean, there's, there's a lot of that. Yeah. In the, in the space for sure. So then what, what effect do you think that has had on the, the sort of potential of podcasting to challenge uh, the legacy media, um, I think it's you know I think it's both a good and a um, a good and a bad thing, in the sense that um, it'll draw audiences to the podcasting space. So this, this popularity of of podcasting, um, whether it be caused by Barack Obama or one of these like lesser known podcasts like Capital Isn't. Um, it, it drives people to start asking like, well, what's in this space? What's good out there? What podcast should I be listening to? I get that question like all the time, right? Um, but the bad side of it is I think um, that these platforms are gonna see the economic opportunity that comes with privileging the podcasts that draw the larger audiences. Um, those podcasts can be ones who are tied to legacy media audiences, tied to political parties. Um, and that may draw less traffic um, to what I see as these more substantive, influential podcasts. 
what are some of the other dilemmas that podcasters face or, or just uh, obstacles? Yeah, the, the other, the, the main dilemma we talk about in um, the text is that the, the tools that these podcasters are using, um, you know, to record messages, to record messages of resistance, possibly to organize um, actions of resistance. These tools are, are controlled and managed by a handful of corporations who are, who are tied to very powerful actors in the state. Um, these tools are also um, built on a surveillance mechanism. Um, the idea is to always be collecting data, which means collecting your emails, collecting what's said through your microphone, collecting your video, collecting your searches, all these things. And there's a long history of surveillance being used to exploit people, particularly those who are most vulnerable in society, as well as using that surveillance to undermine any efforts at social justice movements and others. So, you know, this could be tapping phone lines, reading the mail of a previous generation. Um, but today, we're, we're actively using these tools in the podcasting space. And so this is kind of the dilemma, right? There's a lot of potential for using these tools to organize and get your message out, but you're also creating larger vulnerabilities to those very same movements um, that could potentially be helped. So it sounds like on one hand, we have uh, surveillance capitalism, and on the other, we have uh, an emerging uh, podcast oligopoly um, that could uh, hurt the efforts of uh, podcasting as a tool of uh, decolonization. And I wanted to get into that. What, what do we mean by decolonization? Because I, I have a lot of uh, listeners that are just getting into uh, college and higher education, and they're just learning about anti-colonial struggle and revolution and, and uh, decolonization efforts. So what do we mean by that? And how can podcasting be a tool for those things? Yeah, for sure. Great question. Um, in, the, in the communication space, when we talk about um, decolonization, we're, we're talking about the, the cultural legacy um, that is left with being the colonized. Um, and this could mean, um, you know, being people of color, segregated or enslaved in the United States, uh, this could be uh, the history of patriarchy, which colonized women. Um, and the argument there is that when you are marginalized, exploited, um, and colonized, there's a legacy that comes with it. We start to internalize um, the negative um, the negative justifications that are given for that colonization, right? So arguments that, that women are, are weaker or, or people of color are less intelligent. Um, we, we provide messages that legitimize that, that claim for colonization so much that even the people who are colonized start to internalize them. So they start to internalize this idea that they're lesser or that they're not as strong, they're not as influential, they're not as important. And so the process of decolonization is interrogating these things that we believe, these, these claims that we make to ourselves to see how much legitimacy they have. And so the podcasting space is really unique for that because we can, um, podcasters can interrogate, you know, anything for seemingly endless hours. You know, I talked about, I talked about food. There's a lot of folks who see colonization emerging from food. You know, what's on the plate in front of you um, can, can tell a story to some of these podcasters. Other folks like to go for films. Um, they use films in their, in their podcasts. Um, some of the folks we were talking about earlier like to use news media the ways in which news media perpetuates these um, justifications for colonization. We refer to these justifications as colonial mentalities. 
Um, so colonial mentalities uh, refer to the internalization of these uh, tropes or, or negative um, claims about particular groups. And so decolonization is really about that, is about getting rid of the, the colonial facade that has shaped so much of reality and actions um, for the purposes of liberation. So you said Nicholas Baham uh, III takes a more maybe um, optimistic view, whereas uh, you're, you're the uh, eternal skeptic in some ways. And I, I have to be honest, I, I've often taken the extremely skeptical view. I like doing podcasts, but I also don't like taking uh, undue credit either. You know, like I do a podcast. I'm not the same as uh, someone organizing out in the streets. Um, and I've been very skeptical of uh, the potential of, of podcasts to lead to actual change in our world. And I, I guess for me, the biggest problem is that so much of podcasting seems to become um, part of a, a spectacle. You know, um, all our politics today seems to almost boil down to um, pro wrestling in, in some ways. Uh, so how do you sort of respond to people that are skeptical of uh, podcasting as a tool um, for change? Because I, I, in some ways I am part of that camp, like I said, because I, I like doing what I do and I think it's informative to people, but I also don't want to lead people to think, oh yeah, we're, we're leading the revolution and this is going to be what ends the empire, because I, I think that may be an oversimplification. I agree with you on that. Um, yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, I think defining change and understanding the limits of the space can be helpful. And this is where I think our, our book is particularly helpful, because um, on the one hand, there are many chapters of the book that rightly celebrate the incredible work that these people are doing um, and the change they bring, which I would largely define as change in awareness. Um, you know, you can pick up these podcasts about topics, you know, you seemingly know nothing about. They can really transform your worldview based on their guests and interpretation and evidence. Um, and that's a really powerful, full tool. Um, we do critique the podcast, though, as well. Um, there's some things we find, you know, kind of shocking that are missing in the space. We find, like, very little discussion of empire and imperialism, uh, very little discussion about indigenous peoples in, in the Americas. Um, so about the treatment of Native Americans um, we found was um, missing in kind of a shocking way. Um, but, but more so than that, um, we also critique the space uh, for having uh, a lot very little focus on actual steps toward organizing and making change. So I think Brianna Joy Gray, as I mentioned, has, has you know tried to really move in this space. She always likes to present the question like, okay, but what can we do about it? And she likes to really hammer her guests on that. What can we do about it? What are some like actual steps? But for a large part in the, if from the podcast that we reviewed, we didn't see a lot of efforts at creating organizer sustained change. Um, building awareness seemed to be the, the limit of the space as far as change. Although, as I mentioned, there's some folks like um, Brown Joyger and others who are trying to go beyond that. Why do you think that is? I mean, I, I think I'm guilty of that too, where, um, you, you know, I think a lot of podcasters, especially ones doing um, political podcasts or current events podcasts, it's about informing. And also, I, I think we're really into critique, <laughs> um, you know, endless criticism, but not necessarily okay, what can we do about this situation? Why do you think uh, that's one of the limits that podcasters face? 
Yeah, um, the uh, um, I think it's a great it's a great question. Um, I think you know one of it has to do with kind of the the age in which we live, right? A lot of these podcasters are are relatively close to my age, you know, a little, little above, little below, um, and. You know, I'm someone who studied history. In particular, I studied a lot of social movements, labor movements, and the abolitionist movement in the 19th century and, and things like that. Um, I would say this is a generation that largely has been raised without historical accounts of what social movements are or what protests are. Um, and a lot of the ways that they've come to learn about protests have been like through virtue signaling online. So, you know, they know how to listen to like, a podcaster make a great critique of whoever the sitting president is and they know how to hit the like button and, and write a comment that like uh you know flame wars the president but when it comes to like why you actually get in the streets how you organize how you put pressure on those in power how you set goals and achieve them i don't think there's a lot of historical memory about that in the culture and so this is where i do think though that podcasting can be useful i think podcasts that talk more about like the civil rights movement wasn't just people of color getting down the streets and making noise. You know, they had training sessions and were well organized. They had some goals. They put pressure in particular places because they thought they could extract the most from politicians based on that pressure. So kind of relearning that lesson, I think, is, is one thing. Secondly, um, and this is a uh, more 21st century issue, a lot of the organizing that took place um, prior to the 21st century you tended to do it in secret. You know, you would have meetings, you would have maybe uh, like newsletters that were handed out to only your like followers. If you and I talk about how to organize a revolution right now on this podcast, um, it, it very much is conceivable that the people we're trying to organize the revolution against can hear it, can learn our tactics and can anticipate them. So in some way, the, the podcast isn't conducive to kind of that necessary secrecy um, that's required for, for social movements. So the book also looks at um, the community activism created by decolonizing podcasts. Um, what what is some of the activism that has come out of this? The, the community activism. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the um, the community activism um, that we sort of found is is very limited. It tends to be these mostly like online campaigns um, that try and put pressure on whoever it is, a politician, organization, um, something like that. But as I mentioned, we, we don't see a lot of sort of take to the streets pressure um, put on people. And anything, it, it might be like amplifying the um, work that's already going on um, in other movements. And this is something that, you know, scholars have written about in the digital age that digital media can help amplify um, uh, social movements that have already been created offline, um, but you need that offline component. They're almost never created wholly online. Do you think that maybe one of the problems or one of the limits it isn't so much due to podcasting, but maybe I guess the news environment we're in in general, by which I mean, I think a lot of people are really removed from um, their local world, their their community world, and everyone thinks in terms of national politics. Uh, we have things going on right in our local environments that we should be organizing around, uh, standing up against or for. Um, could you speak to that and maybe 
that's where podcasting, you know, in my view, maybe that's where it needs to go. Maybe we need, uh, you know, uh, podcasts for each little um, local area uh, that, that, you know, push for radical change. It's a great point. I would I would agree. And it's an area I've done some work in. Um, you know, folks who are familiar with my work will know I do a lot of work in the education space. I'm an educator. And um, yeah, that's one of the things I've pointed out to journalism programs, you know, which are, um, you know, getting smaller enrollments and smaller budgets. I said, you know, the the student paper on campus or online is, is totally necessary. It's probably the only news that those local areas get because we have so many news deserts in this country. But with the popularity of podcasting, I think you could reach a larger audience with those podcasts if you talked about local issues. And to your point, I've always been a big believer, and I think the data bores this out. People are much more interested in what's going on in their local community than they are with what's going on in D.C. Um, you know, like when, when Joe Biden thought it was like the greatest thing ever, he got a bipartisan infrastructure bill and everybody in Washington was clapping their hands, Washington works again. The average person really doesn't care. There's, you know, 15, 20 things going on in their neighborhood that are much more important to their lives than Republicans and Democrats coming together on some bill that's going to move tax dollars to corporate America. Um, and so I think um, you, you, you hit on a very strong point there, which is we've talked for years about the problems with news media um, in general and local news in particular. Podcasting has the potential to possibly fill in some of the gaps or, or address some of those problems that we've talked about in recent decades. Absolutely. Last thing before we start to wrap up, um, what's your advice uh, to podcasters going forward? Because my, my advice to anyone starting a podcast is just start doing it. You know, but uh, what advice would you give uh, to people in this sort of podcasting space? Because I, I think you're offering something a little bit different than, yeah, go out and do it yourself. And, you know, that sort of uh, punk rock ethos. You're saying these are the pitfalls you need to avoid as well. Yeah, I would be, uh, it's, it's a great question. I, you know, in, in larger discussion of pitfalls, yeah, I would be cognizant of the pitfalls. Um, things like surveillance, um, know the limits of the space, um, think about the ways in which um, these platforms and tools often aren't your friend, but are your enemies. Um, so do your best to use the master's tools. But um, although I also agree with you, just to go out there, get out there and do it, do the podcast. But I also, and this sounds capitalistic, but it's not how I mean it, um, take risks. You know, um, whatever your topic may be, there's probably an audience out there for it. And so much of our media throughout, you know, world history has been focused on garnering the largest audience possible. I think to be a podcast, you need to think slightly differently. To get a base audience, kind of thinking about a smaller thing or a smaller hook that folks care about to get that audience in. And then perhaps later on, you can broaden into other topics. Um, but, but finding that kind of niche um, for your podcast is, is really uh, critical to, to your success. And it's also very, very useful. Like, you know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, kind of the, the podcasting space you're in. Um, one of the things I like about podcasting is there is kind of a punk rock ethos to it and that podcasters have each other on and they promote each other, right? It's, it's what I generally see in this space, both as being a podcaster and studying it is people generally promote each other. It reminds me of growing up in the Bay Area with um, podcasters or with uh, punk rockers as well. But um, 
there's also limits to that. You, you don't need to say and what other people in that space are already saying. You don't need to interview people who are already in that same, having the same interviews. You know, bring in other voices, take risks, give like other shots. That's the stuff that really captivates audiences. You know, we know where we can go to get what we already know. Um, we want to find out like other stuff. So working with folks in, in that, I think, is, is really helpful as well. I think what's really fascinating, too, is, you know, I, I can have someone like you on who, uh, you know, has studied media um, as part of his academic pursuits. And, you know, there, there are so many um, highly educated and, and thoughtful voices out there that you're not going to hear on you know, Fox News or MSNBC or CNN um, that are now sort of getting their chance to speak um, through uh, the podcasting world, whether it's yourself or, or Mickey Huff at Project Censored or uh, Dr. Jack Rasmus, the, the economist who has his own show, um, Alternative Views. I think that's briefly mentioned in the podcaster's dilemma. Uh, so there's all these voices that are, you know, just as, I mean, not not that I'm a a credentialist or anything, but you, you have very credentialed voices uh, that can speak to very specific issues that haven't traditionally always been heard in the mainstream or legacy media that we're now hearing um, thanks to podcasting. That's a, yeah, that is an excellent, excellent point. Um, a lot of the, um, you know, there's these great, like, like you said, like academics, there's also just great writers, great commentators, artists, who, you know, are really from the U.S., who are really popular around the world and will get invited on programs, but they get, like, ignored by legacy media. And, yeah, podcasting has clearly created a place where those folks, you know, can be heard um, at, at one level or another. Um, so it's it's great for that, great for that space as well. Um, and it's also great, you know, just to learn. So much of legacy media comes from, like, a narrow group of credentialed elites from, like, the same, like, elite schools who care about the same Democrat versus Republican national politics. The podcasting space, you can find, you know, just a, a broad range of folks from where they come from, what they care about, and what they think about. Um, you know, we, we came across a bunch of, like, podcasting shows in here that were on, like, Swingers, for example. Um, you know, not a topic that I had ever researched or was interested in. But listening to these podcasts, like I got to learn more about the culture, more about like how they negotiate this space and, and like what it means to be a part of the swinging community. Um, and so it was uh, educational in that in that sense. It gave some more like context to something we sort of just talk about in passing. And I think there's a multitude of subjects like that that podcasters are wrestling with. Yeah, I, I, really quickly, I think that's uh, an interesting point. You, you mentioned podcasts uh, about swinging. There's all kinds of podcasts navigating the space of sexuality and they're not necessarily doing it in like some uh, pornographic sensationalistic way and to me that's one of the most interesting developments uh, coming out of podcasting could you comment on that yeah yeah absolutely a whole bunch a whole big section of our book um is about podcasts that, that wrestle with um sexuality uh uh Nick has done a lot of work on black sexuality. That's where a lot of his research is in. So um, he took a lot of that. Um, he took a lot of the, the framework um, for that portion of the book. But yeah, essentially, um, beyond just swingers, these are people just interrogating like the power dynamics of sex, or um, you know how the connection between like sex and dating and relationships and what these mean. Um, there, there's some podcasts. I think it was two 
two dope queens, I think, who did this one that that broke down like um, the conflicts between like uh, being a black person and a Muslim American and the relationships those create in American context. So, I mean, this is very like you know, niche, very well-defined um, dynamics that you can find in the podcasting space where you would never find like an hour episode of Rachel Maddow um, dedicated to something like this with any substance. And uh, just final thoughts here. What do you hope that uh, readers uh, of the book get out of it? Um, or if they haven't picked up the book yet, what, what do you hope they get out of it if they pick up the book? What do you hope they got out of this conversation? Um, on my end, I, I do think it's interesting. There's some topics that I don't think got coverage early on in the legacy media that eventually got coverage. And I sometimes wonder if that's because of uh, podcasters and alternative media. So for instance, you know, I used to talk to uh, Billy Winter Davis, uh, the, the whistleblower reality winner's uh, mother. And I know everyone has their opinions on reality winner and the, the whole Rushkey thing, but I think we can all agree that she was, um, you know, not treated well. Um, you know, I think she was railroaded um, by the, the national security state. Uh, but a lot of people in the legacy media didn't really cover that um, up until maybe a year or so ago. And I, I think it was the work of a lot of people at alt media that did cover it uh, that led to more awareness about uh, this young woman's plight. So, you know, in ways, although I am skeptical of the power of podcasting, I suppose, for social change, I think sometimes we may have, you know, that, that little effect, a ripple effect, so to speak. Yeah, and I think there's there's more evidence. I mean, even beyond that. I mean, I think like um, in in um, January of 2021, when like Jimmy Dore and others did like the Stop the Vote campaign, um, that penetrated into legacy media discussion briefly. Um, when uh, the, the, a lot of the talk that continued about Hunter Biden's laptop is thanks to the podcasting space. Um, you know, so yeah, the podcasting space um, is influential. And as I pointed at the beginning of the show, the fact that a lot of these legacy media people and outlets are going to the podcasting space illustrates its power. They recognize like, look, this is what's influencing our audiences. We got to get in this space um, one way or another. And so I, I would continue that, that optimism. Um, as far as your question, you know, I do hope people pick up the, the book. Um, at the most basic sense, um, this is kind of a cheesy answer, but it's true. Uh, Nick and I really wanted to write the book so we could come up with a comprehensive list of podcasts people could go to, um, you know, to kind of cut out the, the garbage of legacy media and get some stuff that's actually worth it, meaningful to them in their lives. And so I hope folks go at just the very least to kind of learn about what's out there. Um, this is in that sense, a very comprehensive text. Um, I also hope it, it wakens some people to the problems of surveillance capitalism. Um, you know, I, I think that this has been something that's out there, and I know it's an academic term, but as a concept, I think most people get parts of it. So I hope we start to focus more of our attention on what's actually happening in this digital space to our culture and to our economy, to our democracy, and in a more serious way than this Russia, Trump, Facebook nonsense, you know, more serious discussion um, about that. And then lastly, um, I hope that people, after reading this book, will recognize the value in the podcasting space and work to defend it. Um, so look at the threats posed by surveillance capitalism. Look at the threats posed by this 
uh, commercial monopolization of the space and try and resist those because this is a space worth protecting, uh, at least in our opinion. It's very valuable to us, our democracy and to the global community. Well, thank you again, Nolan Higdon, for coming on Parallax Views. I hope everyone will check out the podcaster's dilemma. Thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Carl Rhodes and Nolan Higdon. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.